the, 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 the host here is Jeremy Hobson. CNN is projecting that Republican Glenn Youngkin has been elected governor of Virginia, defeating Democrat Terry McAuliffe. Youngkin pulling off a critical victory for his party in the highest stakes election of the night. This is the first time Republicans have won an election for Virginia's top office in 12 years. This is the Hobcast. This is the Hobcast. I'm Jeremy Hobson. And if you are a regular listener, you heard our episode a couple of episodes ago. We were talking about inflation and reconciliation and the election in Virginia and why Virginia, even though it is just one of the 50 states, matters when it comes to what's happening in Washington. Well, we saw the election this week in Virginia and in New Jersey and in several other places, and they are paying a lot of attention to the result, which was that Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat running for governor, uh, lost by a couple of points in a state that President Biden last year won by about 10 points. So, of course, as a result of that, the entire nation's mood has changed uh, because, because of what just happened in Virginia. And to talk about that today, I've got one of the greatest followers of politics I've ever encountered uh, in my years of journalism, and that is Beth Fui, who spent many years at the AP, at CNN, at NBC, MSNBC, and has now gone to the dark side of public affairs <laughs> and is a partner at Finsbury, Glover, and Herring. Uh, Beth, welcome to the Hobcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So, okay, what do you take away from what just happened? And I, I mean, you know, there were elections in a lot of places, but really Virginia is the one everybody's paying attention to. Yeah, well, thanks for your kind introduction. And I still do follow politics uh, pretty avidly, um, even in my new role. But one thing I'm trying to do is not jump onto Twitter and take hot takes uh, like perhaps I did in the past. So I'm really trying to think through, you know, what to take away primarily from the results in Virginia and elsewhere. And look, it reminds me a lot of 2009, back when President Obama was first uh, in the White House. We had hit this terrible economic uh, crisis. The financial markets had collapsed. Uh, the housing market had collapsed. President Obama was uh, entrusted by a very large majority of American voters to somehow fix this terrible calamity we were in. Um, Republicans declared immediately that they didn't intend to help him at all uh, in, in finding his way out of that problem. So he made a bunch of decisions, including um, pressing forward on a, on a relief plan uh, that, that cost many hundreds of millions of dollars to bail out the banks and to bail out businesses. And that en en enraged a lot of voters who hadn't really thought that he was going to sort of go down this pike of, you know, very, very big government spending right off the bat. And when the Virginia election came along in 2009, um, the Republican Bob McDonnell won by something like 19 points. Now, granted, Virginia was much uh, less of a Democratic stalwart at that point, but it was still this clear repudiation of what was going on in Washington that would herald what would happen in 2010, which was Democrats taking a huge pasting in the House and losing their House majority. So what happened in Virginia this time, uh, not dissimilar. Uh, Joe Biden has been trying to push through a lot of very expensive programs um, in the uh, on Capitol Hill in Washington, meeting complete resistance from Republicans. The Democrats are themselves undecided on how far to go in this way. So uh, Joe Biden has very little sort of to 
to point to in terms of success right now, in terms of moving an agenda along. Terry McAuliffe is an old face in Virginia. He'd been governor before. He was not anybody who could come out and say he was going to do, do anything much new or different in that state. And most importantly, Republicans found a good candidate and a good message in Glenn Youngkin. They found somebody who could not necessarily embrace President Trump's legacy, but not fully push him away either. And they captured a, an, a, a, an issue that is motivating a lot of people right now, which is education, figuring out what is going on in kids' schools. There's uh, some alarm around the discussion of race Mm -hmm. and other uh, sort of hot button topics in school curricula. And Glenn Glenn Youngkin uh, grabbed that and wrote it to victory. But let's talk about the the spending part of it, because that's an interesting comparison to what happened in 2009. But Republicans who say that they're very upset about the spending right now, about the idea of spending this money on sort of future infrastructure and, you know, elder care and universal pre-kindergarten didn't have any problem with President Trump spending trillions of dollars last year in the midst of the pandemic. Of course. Listen, I mean, uh, neither party is is, is particularly consistent in, in their messaging, and certainly Republicans are not and have not been on the issue of spending. Republican presidents for decades now have have spent the federal budget into much larger deficits than any Democratic president has. However, I would argue a couple of things. Number one, one could argue that that Joe Biden was not elected to be a big spending sort of FDR style Democrat. Um, and, And so there was perhaps some alarm among voters who thought that he wasn't going to quite take that route uh, in his early days of office. But on the other hand, the programs he's pushing, the ones you described, Jeremy, and and so many other aspects of this Build Back Better plan are super popular among the American population. Republicans, in addition to Democrats, like the idea of of investing in infrastructure and improving our roads and bridges and in sort of bolstering a lot of these these things that, that our country depends on to function properly. But between the sort of just talking about it as a big ticket budget item and uh, complete and utter Republican opposition, Democrats have had very little place to maneuver. And so it all comes down to sort of these differences among the more moderate factions among in the party and the more progressive factions. Well, and it seems that one of the messages that Democrats are taking away from what just happened is they need to pass their stuff now. They 100% do because it's a, a regrettable fact that, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, because our politics have become so polarized, every president comes in realizing that they have a very tiny window of opportunity to get anything done because the midterms come right up and then everybody starts maneuvering for the for the next presidential election. So your first year in office is really your best chance to get much done. In, in Joe Biden's case, especially... So because he has such a narrow Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, the chances are quite good that he loses Democratic majority in both places in 2022. So he really had no choice to push but to push very hard for these things, as you suggest. What does this election in Virginia in particular mean for President Trump? Because you uh, mentioned that Glenn Youngkin wanted to stay kind of at an arm's length away from him, not completely push him away, but like play this game where he, you know, oh, President Trump's having a tele-rally for me. That's fine. I'm not going to be part of it, but whatever. We take support wherever we can get it. He played that game. But at the end of the day, Glenn Youngkin performed better in Virginia than President Trump did by a lot. Um 
Does this do anything to Republicans who are looking at how closely they need to ally themselves with President Trump going into next year? Yes. Um, one thing we really learned from this election is that it doesn't really help Democrats to bring up the specter of President Trump when President Trump is in fact not there. That does not seem to be a, a very winning message for them. However, what could be a winning message for them is President Trump coming back, which he is likely to do. Um, as we all know, President Trump loves attention. He's the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. It has to always be all about him. And he will, uh, if, if, if he does what many of us expect, which is he does intend to run for re-election in 2024, he will start to step out more publicly, interject himself in some of these races yet to come and could present a real problem for Republicans. They want his voters, but they also need to woo back voters who are really repulsed by President Trump. That's what Glenn Youngkin was able to do. And Republicans going forward are going to need to do the same thing. Otherwise, the election once again becomes all about Donald Trump, and that does not help them. So where do you see things going right now when it comes to Biden's agenda? Now that this has happened and, and they're, they're going to try to pass everything, the Build Back Better plan, get the infrastructure bill passed through the House, signed into law, et cetera. Do you, is he going to get all these things that he wants? Is he going to try to spend the next year selling it to the American people? Well, he has to. He has to come up with a win. And, and whatever they end up passing on Capitol Hill, he's going to declare a win and he's going to go out and sell for sure. But here's the thing, Jeremy, simply doing that is not sufficient for what President Biden is facing right now. There's a whole lot of problems out there that the BBB or whatever you want to call it does not address. We are in a period of, of severe by you know, recent standards, inflation. American families are really feeling the pinch at the po in their pocketbooks on, on, you know, the price of food, mm -hmm. the price of gas. Uh, that's very real and very tangible for a lot of Americans. We are not out of COVID yet. And people are getting very frustrated by uh, continuing to have to limit their movements and never knowing what's going to happen in their kids school the next day, um, because the COVID virus does not seem to want to be crushed out. Now, granted, President Biden has done everything he can do to get people to get vaccinated, to take steps to make this thing go away once and for all. But until and unless it does, and, and until and unless it's in the rearview mirror, it's going to be sort of hanging over President Biden and sort of crimping his ability to move the nation in a new direction. So there are things that have to happen other other than BBB for President Biden's fortunes to turn around. Well, and the fact that we're not out of COVID yet is is a very interesting point because uh, I, I saw uh, some political strategist on TV this week basically say that Biden should be out there having press conferences like Trump did in the middle of COVID to talk about inflation. Because in fact, that is, I mean, especially if you listen to the Biden administration, all these price surges are, are very related to supply chain problems that are part of COVID. And, and frankly, and we've talked about this on the Hobcast before with the sort of the future of work, a lot of people having been through the last year and a half, not going into the office or not going to work on site have changed their expectations of what work should be. And those are exactly the jobs that, that we're seeing people not wanting to show up for, which is leading to all these bottlenecks. 
It's so true. It's everything's interconnected and everything is global. As you say, the supply chain issue is global, certainly affected by uh, what's going on with COVID in, in countries all over the, the world that we do business with and trade with. Uh, that is just a really hard message to share with Americans who are frustrated that they go to Target and they can't buy the things they want to do, who go to the grocery store to buy uh, food for their family and everything's you know 20% more than it was three months ago, you know, how you describe that sort of delicate supply chain dance and the fact that, you know, some workers are reluctant to come back to crappy jobs. And so they're not able to staff some of these places that Americans want to shop. All of it is true. All of it is very hard to distill into a message that that frustrated Americans can understand. Mm -hmm. Beth, you have been now kind of out of the daily news business for a few months, right? Since the summer, basically. Yep. Yep. Um, what do you think of how the media are entering this new era of covering the news post-Trump's presidency, which is a very different world than in Trump's presidency? You know, it is and it isn't. I mean, all of those forces that elected President Trump to begin with and convened on the Capitol on January 6th for that siege, you know, they are still out there. And my, my concern about and I speak as a longtime political reporter, so I'm as probably as guilty about this as anyone. Uh, we all grew up, you know, certainly my generation of political reporters grew up trying to treat both parties as being on the level that they are both, you know, devoted to um, making government work, to coming up with solutions for the American people that make their lives better, for working together, uh, trading off, doing negotiation, doing concessions here and there to ultimately come up with a compromise that will work for perhaps not everybody, but for most Americans. Mm -hmm. That's not the case anymore. Um, the Republican Party has become a party of entirely of opposition. They are not making uh, an effort to govern in a way that is positive and productive. Uh, they have also refused to denounce or renounce what happened on January 6th and, and President Trump's culpability there. And as a result, it's very hard to cover both parties as 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 equals. Uh, the Democratic Party certainly makes a lot of mistakes and. Uh, has a lot of problems, but at least they approach the task of governing as a as a sincere obligation. And that's not the case for Republicans right now. And it's very, very hard for political reporters who were kind of trained to view things in a, a more equal way to adjust to the new reality. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the big issues, and you brought this up, uh, that, that that came up in this race in Virginia, is something that is. I think it ties into what we're talking about here, this issue of like critical race theory um, and and just using this wedge issue that really draws such emotion on both sides to win elections. What do you think of what of what just happened there with that in the state of Virginia? And how do Democrats play that? Because, you know, it's not being taught in Virginia schools, but the Democratic candidate is not going to be able to say, and I don't ever want it to be taught in Virginia schools, because they're a part of the base that would like critical race theory probably to be taught in Virginia schools. So what we're seeing here is a swinging pendulum in politics. We saw the first swing uh, back in 2020, June 2020, after George Floyd was murdered. And there was a very big, quick and urgent movement toward improving our America's reckoning with race, realizing that young black men are not treated equally by the police, 
realizing that African-Americans do not have sufficient voice or a seat at the table in business and education and in uh, so many other aspects of our culture. So there was a very quick move to try to improve that and make it quickly better. Given the way our politics work, everything swung back. And there was this big concern that, in fact, we'd moved too quickly and that students were being exposed to too much uh, discussion of race and, and it wasn't contextualized and it wasn't grade appropriate. Um, that message turned out to test really well with suburban audiences in particular, which are the very people that Republicans over the course of the last few elections have seen uh, leave the party. And so Republican politicians and their consultants said, you know what, we probably have hooked onto something here that really might break through, that might bring back those suburban voters and and especially to get at a, an issue that actually feels really sort of real for a lot of people. That's the hard part, Jeremy, is that you're right. Democrats cannot say um, we shouldn't be teaching about race in school, but they also can't tell parents that what they're feeling isn't real and mm -hmm. what they uh, and the fact that they want to have some some input in how their children are taught and make it be age appropriate is you can't as a political party tell them that that's just simply not uh, acceptable and they just they just can't play that role in their kids' lives. Uh, I want to ask you just two more quick questions, um, Beth. One is, we, we talked a little bit about the insurrection. If I watch Fox News for a day, I will hear nothing but critical race theory all day long. If I watch MSNBC right now for a day, I'm going to hear a lot about the insurrection on January 6th. Given that the voters in Virginia just basically said that they're a little more concerned about one than the other in 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 some ways that they that they're 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 more concerned about critical race theory than looking backward to president trump and the insurrection how much should the media be covering the investigation into what happened on january 6th this point because it's, obviously it's a very important thing and it's like we want to come to some closure with it and and point out how terrible it was for this country but at the same time Voters never want to really look backward. They'd much rather look forward. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that, except that because the events of January 6th uh, tell us that the, that movement is not over and that there is a significant number of activists around the country who want to um, overturn a, a fair election, we can't pretend that that isn't out there and that that remains a looming threat. It's not just in the past, it's in the future as well, if it's not fully investigated and uh, addressed. That said, I would agree with you that voters care about their pocketbook. Um, they care about COVID. Increasingly, culture has become a huge factor for people in their vote. You know, the old adage, it's the economy stupid, really is sort of feeling a little ancient at this point. Um, it seems like culture is as important to many voters and how they cast their vote as uh, the economy, which is why something like what happened in Virginia and the whole issue of critical race theory was, was, was salient. So my quick answer would be, you don't have to decide between one or the other. Keep the investigation of January 6th going, but also recognize the, the daily challenges to American lives that drive how they vote. What, do you think it's actually going to be addressed at any point, or is it just going to be investigated for a long time? Oh, it's going to be addressed. I mean, there's a there's a congressional committee that is doing a pretty thorough investigation. Unfortunately, it is not bipartisan. Um, Republicans, for the most part, except for a couple of House Republicans, refuse to take part in the investigation at all. And the Justice Department is doing a, a very robust investigation as well. I mean, there could be indictments brought. There could be 
a lot more arrests. Many of the participants in January 6th have been arrested and are facing indictment. The question is whether any of the political leadership around President Trump is legally implicated, and we're still waiting to see if that happens. Okay, let me finally ask you, if you had to give some advice right now to a young political reporter about how best to do their jobs, especially covering this country right now, which is so complicated and difficult and everybody's so divided, et cetera, what would you tell them? Stay off Twitter. <laughs> that would be my 100% first recommendation. Twitter is a total distortion of reality that I think drives way too many conversations that are completely irrelevant to American lives. Here's an old cliche, get out of DC, um, talk to voters all over the country. And, you know, not the way we did after Trump was elected when everybody went to, you know, rural diners and talk to, you know, old white guys. I mean, that's fine too, but don't limit it to, to that. Just get out of where you live, get out of where you converse and uh, form your opinions and listen with an open mind to voters around the country and what they are telling you. And that should inform your reporting more than anything else. Stay off Twitter. That's my big, that's my biggest recommendation. Very good piece of advice. And I will say, I remember uh, a couple of years ago when there was that special election in Alabama for uh, the seat that Roy Moore was running for. And then Doug um, Jones, Doug Jones won that election. The Democrat won that election. I went down to Alabama with a producer who I love, but I said, let's 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 find some Democrats and Republicans and go talk to them about who they're voting for. And this person was only able to find Democrats. I'm like, we're in Alabama. There've got to be Republicans. He's like, I can't find any. I don't know where to go. She's asking the people, where should I go to find? I said, we're going to a suburban Walmart and we're going to find them there. And we we went to a parking lot, a suburban Walmart parking lot. Everybody was voting for Roy. Of course, of, of course. course. And, and, you know, and there's, there's plenty of places to find voters uh, who are Democrats, who are Republicans, who are have, have di all sorts of different points of view and, and reporters have got to go talk to those people. Get outside of their own bubbles. Get on, get outside of Twitter, get outside of their outside own, their own, their own safe zone. Beth Fui, longtime political reporter, partner now at Finsbury Glover Herring. Thank you so much. So wonderful to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for episode 13, the Baker's Dozen edition of the Hobcast. Thanks as always to John J. Richardson and Andrew Haig for production and engineering help. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Don't tell Beth I said this, but I'm on Twitter at Jeremy Hobson, and I'll talk to you next time.